Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness, as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today I'm joined by a woman whose passion and talent lie in exploring society's big question to develop a more equitable society. Her groundbreaking research project is titled Neurology of Power, a practice research-based project that asks where power resides in the brain and body. A core strand of this research interrogates the relationship between power, well-being, self-care, the individual, organisations and wider society. She holds fellowships at the RSA and Demos, as well as being a 2022 Acumen Fellow and a 2020 Churchill Fellow. She's a cultural thinker and the founder of Alain And, a strategic consultancy and cultural incubator. I'm delighted to introduce to you Suzanne Alain. Suzanne, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being here. Uh, Miriam, thank you for having me. It's so funny listening to my bio because I'm like, Ooh, and they're like, oh, it's me. I'm regular. <laughs> Indeed. Well, on the subject of the neurology of power, <laughs> uh, with the uh, relationship between bios and power has got to be an interesting one to uh, to look into. I think everyone sort of has a shudder when we hear our own bios. Well, I'm going to say everyone. I'm sure some people don't, but <laughs> a lot of women, especially, I think, do struggle hearing back their accolades and going, oh gosh, is that really me? Um, well, on, on the subject of the neurology of power, um, an interesting term, for those of us who are not familiar with, with what those terms mean, what does the neurology of power refer to? So it's really interesting that you ask that. I've just been having this conversation this morning. Um, and actually, it's not a technical science term for me. Like, mm. I'm not interested in what neurology means. I'm not interested in of means. I'm not interested in what power means. I'm interested in when you hear it as someone coming across it as a reader or an audience or a company, what does it make you think it means? Mm. Um, and that's really a, 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 that's really a big part of how my work is. And so for me, I sat there and I was like, I, I had a question, a really basic question. And it was, where is power in my brain? Mm. And then because I have a belief in lots of things from alternative health to the ways different cultures work, um, I very much believe um, our bodies and souls are connected. I started to think, oh, I can't really just limit it to where is power in our brains because I know full well, for example, that our gut is our second brain. Mm. And so neurology of power for me, it's a bit of an anathema. But what it really means is where is power in our brains and our bodies? Mm. That's so interesting. And, and is this um, 
something that you came to um I mean I guess how how did you come to it how did, what brought you to this area of study of wanting to understand where power resides in the brain so I um I think about this as being all of my life's experiences intersected and brought me here at the right time I know that sounds really dramatic um but I think you know, when I talk, I think about things that have helped me that might help others. And so I would definitely say, like, careers are not necessarily linear for many people. And what happened for me was that I had made a step into working at least some of the time in the funded arts sector. So for those that don't understand what that means, that's the part of the arts. Uh, if you're UK based, so for our UK readers, listeners, that's the part of the arts that is funded by the government. So all of that money is public, and that means it has to be in service of the whole of society. So I was working in the funded sector, and I had the worst moment of my life. And my life has been full of trauma, right? So to say that, I don't say that lightly. And I felt completely powerless. And the thing about me is I'm like one of those weeble wobble things. Like, I go to bed, and I'm like, it's all over. I can't. Like, the world is terrible. And then I process and I wake up and I woke up in the middle of the night going, hang on a minute. What's wrong is that I feel really powerless. I mm -hmm. feel discombobulated. I feel frozen. I feel like I don't have any control over my life. And worse yet, I don't have any control of how people are portraying me. And then I was just like, OK, stop the panic now. What is it? What if you could sum this up in a single sentence, what's going on? And I was like, I don't have any power. What am I going to do? And then I woke up and I was again, like, I went back to sleep and I woke up and I suddenly went, da da, what is power and where is it? And I sort of did this thing where you recap in your life and you sort of think about people and situations. And I was like, that was a moment of power. That person had power. And I'm always asking these big, big questions. And I was like, oh my gosh, if I think about all of these situations, time I have had power, time I haven't had power, when I've been upset at the government, when I've been upset in relationships, power is the thing that knits all of that together. And that's how I came up with Neurology of Power. And the name was that I wanted something that felt descriptive, not necessarily literal, but descriptive. And I wanted something that would appeal to who I, who I perceive my audience to be. Mm. And and I mean, listening to you, um, um, it's so interesting because power, I think, is such a term that obviously when we say power, everyone understands something, but we may all mean different things by that. And I'm conscious that the term power itself is quite contested. So like it's it's also very gendered, you know, men often describe power in sort of physical terms and strength and force and and then you know a lot of women might re respond and say well no a lot of power is there's power in vulnerability and kindness so um uh, how do you think about power in the midst of all of that so um when I first started I thought about as I said I started from feeling powerless and then uh, I just finished doing a master's. So I was all up in definitions, like you can't do anything in a master's without defining it. Mm -hmm. I started to talk to neuroscientists. And that was one of the things that I asked, like, how are you defining power if you're looking for where it is? And 
there have been some really, really good simple ones. And the one that I like is power is the ability to affect someone else's state. Mm, that's a big one. And so it's super simple, isn't it? And you can get into really dodgy territory. Do you mean someone's physical state, someone's emotional state, someone's behavior? And then you can get into the philosophical. Well, it's about how you receive it, not how. Mate, it's really simple for me. Can I affect your state? Mm. I have power over you. That's, yeah, that's, uh, uh, has the virtue of being very clear and covering all bases. Yeah. Which yeah. is helpful. Um, and what about um, sort of the centrality of um, the the kind of the concept of power within some strands of, if not all, Western philosophy? I'm thinking in particular of people like Nietzsche, who would describe the will to power as the main driving force in humans. Um, you know, do you do you recognize that as being true or do you uh, as a uh, true and I mean when I say true I mean sort of obviously when when a philosopher like Nietzsche is saying it he means it to be true in a sort of universal way or do you do you see it as a reflection of a very particular um psychology that exists within the west and particularly maybe amongst western males I don't know uh, you're coming in with all of the questions straight. In, like, <laughs> like this is like I'm just going to jump in the swimming pool in the deep end. So what's really interesting? So I'm dyslexic and I can go off topic, but I'm going to bring you background. I'm going to go on a little journey and bring Please. you background to the answer around really whether this is a Western perspective or is it a human perspective? Mm. Is really what I think you're asking. Yeah. So you have to go back and take on the journey I had with it. So I am a black, um, neurodiverse, have dyslexia. I come from an awful background of trauma, so I lost big parts of my memory. I'm quite overweight. Uh, I have natural hair, going through menopause. Um, All of those have affected me in different points in different ways. Mm -hmm. Now, what I realise is when I step into that and I'm happy with that, then I can order the world around me and that has become my superpower. But at the point I did this, I started this, I was not feeling like that. I was really feeling bullied. I literally felt like other people were defining who I was and telling people who held my career. So this was this idea, I really felt powerless. Mm. And so when I asked the question about where does power reside, I started off going, where does power reside in the brain? Because although I'm into alternative health and I understand the link between the gut and the brain, what I now know that I did was I immediately limited what I was doing based on how I thought I could navigate the world. Mm. And there's nothing that I've learned so far that my body didn't already know. What the work with neuroscience has done is only legitimize what I could have told you from lived experience. And I didn't realize I was feeling that when I set up this project. And so I literally wrote, I've been back to my early kind of like project overviews where I said, you know, I'm a black British woman and no one's going to listen to me if I talk about this through my lived experience. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and talk to neuroscientists. But of course, as I started to rebalance myself and found my own power back in my project, I was able to go back and reflect and realize, hang on a minute, 
you are limiting the research by only talking to neuroscientists and, and crucially, only looking at it through a Western perspective. And then I, I started to, lots of things happened, but I literally was like, wow, if my great-grandmother was here and had been able to sit in her power and have a business, there's all sort of rituals and customs and ways of being that she would have bought having come from a land-based or an indigenous wisdom perspective. And then I looked out and hence neurology of power very specifically talks about the brain and the body, even though neurology in of itself is more about the nervous system. And so to answer your question, I think there is a question for me whether it is a human condition around how we think about power or a Western condition. And that's because if you look at most land-based or indigenous cultures, how they define power is completely different and how they use power is different. And so I worked with an organization called BAMF um, who, are, who have been gifted a piece of land that belongs um, to an indigenous community on the grounds that they are looking at indigenous wisdom through that lens. And having done a lot of work with them, I've come to some really basic understandings, which is that indigenous cultures and communities, they think about power as in service to their community. So mm -hmm. it's not about power over, it's power in service. Mm. So when they're making a decision, for example, they have to think how that affects those that have lived seven generations behind. Often they have to think about how it affects seven generations ahead. Mm. They have to think about everybody that they're in partnership with on the earth. So other beings, um, plants, animals, the earth. So every decision they make around power is centered in that. And that's such a fundamentally different way. And then you have to ask, is that now something that has become embedded in their bodies, brains, souls over generations? Is that what the difference is? So I don't think it's a human condition because of my work that I'm doing around indigenous and land-based communities and their definition of how power exists and works. Now, and that's so interesting as well in how the kind of um, core definition of power then has such different implications for how different communities move through the world, right? How we relate not only to one another, but as you pointed out, to the natural world, to to animals to plants to the environment to the decisions we make in relationship to all those other parts that we we are just one component of um and which i think has obviously been very much lost in uh the sort of embedded philosophical perspective here that somehow we are uh, masters of that um nature that we have that that's our dominion that we are controlling and 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 kind of seek power over um i i was reading um in uh one of your articles um about the idea of the relationship between power and empathy and, and given what you've just said about how different um 
people in the world relate to power differently um how does that impact our relationship to empathy which obviously is is i guess what you, we often think of as a virtue but obviously is often lacking when we look at the manifestation of our values in the world gosh so um i think that so i'm a massive football fan and we're recording this as the World Cup is happening. We are. <laughs> and I am a massive fan of Gareth Southgate. And the reason that I'm a fan of him, in fact, there's an, a, an article come out in The Guardian today talking about the blueprint of how he leads may help the UK evolve. And essentially what he does is he leads with empathy, right? And... That level of empathy allows him to say to um, Raheem Sterling, go home, go home and make sure your family are okay. For anyone that doesn't know, while, while the World Cup was going on, Raheem Sterling, who's a crucial part of the, of the team, his house was burgled in the okay. UK. Mm-hmm. And now his family weren't there, but, you know, that's an awful thing. And if you look at some of the social media comments, they've been like, oh, man up, you know, no one was there, no one got hurt. But actually that ability to consider uh, a human-centred approach, I believe delivers more and delivers differently. And that's a really, really, really good description of what empathy is, right? Which is the ability to understand and share the feelings of others. But I have this saying you know, I come from Croydon, we were talking before about who this is for. And I like to really speak things plainly. And I say this, empathy without the ability to action is trash. Mm. I don't want your empathy if you can't act on it. Because then it's wasted. And so for me, that relationship between empathy, power, we can talk all day long, but if we're not doing something in service of those, that change, then really it's just rhetoric for me. And so in, in that context, it'd be interesting to hear your views on um, how the neurology of power and the research you've been doing um, fits into our understanding of um, race relations and the way that racism operates in society, because you might describe racism as you know at its core a power dynamic um and so how does what you've learned maybe help us better understand the way that racism operates in our society so i think that um uh empire colonialism they are all functions of power And they are functions of a really, really poor equation if you want the human race to continue to exist and to evolve. And they're really poor functions because sometimes language is both brilliant and limited. And from a a broadly, not all, not everybody, but broadly from a Western perspective, There is this notion that if you have power over other groups of people, actually, you need to do less work to prosper. It's really that simple. 
And if you can dehumanize one group of people, you can delude another group of people that you're not coming for them. So one of the things that I think is truly extraordinary in the UK is a post-Brexit era. Now, let's, I'm going to remove myself from whether I believe in a principle of Brexit, i.e. whether we should be in Europe or not. Mm-hmm. But let me, because actually, if a, if a political party had said to me, I want us to come out of Brexit because we'll have better human rights, we will increase, we will be able to work with everyone around the world equally, and we want to create a, a structure where everyone thrives and flourishes. You might have been able to sell that to me. Mm. So it's not about the, the process or what's put in place. It's about what holds it up. And what holds up for the majority of people Brexit in the UK is more division. It is more they are the bad people. The immigrants are the bad people. And this is all a red herring. And what I think the the, the English public don't understand is that we are being bossed by language. And so the relationship of power and racism is that, like they are two, two sides of the same thing. But as we talked about, if we go back to indigenous and land-based cultures who mm-hmm. understand that you have to be in partnership where even if you don't believe in climate change, which I do, then humanity would surely ask you to ask, what is our responsibility in partnership to those parts of the world that are suffering from a change in what's happening in the geography of the world? And because a small group of people are like, we have the power and having that power and holding it, it's a con. They, those people think survival of the fittest, me, my offspring, my offspring's offspring, we're always going to be the fittest and the strongest. We're always going to have more power. We'll be OK. We're not because I don't believe that equation works like that. The equation is we are all in collaboration with each other. And if we if none of us, if, if some of us aren't thriving, None of us are thriving. And the world tried to show us that with COVID. Mm. If you don't learn your lesson, you're going to get a bigger lesson and a bigger lesson. And that, so for me, yeah, um, power, racism, you know, it's why I go into organisations and it's very clear that a diverse workforce can yield greater results and people still don't want to hear it. Because the thing that they would have to accept is that there are people other than themselves who may have solutions in collaboration with them and quite often they don't look or sound like them. So what does holding on to power for so long look like be that in the context of race relations or I guess on a smaller scale but probably not unrelated within an organisation how does it affect your brain what 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 is your research Um, kind of highlighted about the impact? So I think I'm going to try and cogently describe three things. So the first thing to say is that the people who are researching power, who are neuroscientists, are called social neuroscientists. And you have to do two things first. You have to ask who gets to do that work. 
Mm. Um, and there is definitely a lack of black and brown individuals in that specific area of work. There's a brilliant man called um, Dr. S Professor Sukhvinder Obi, um, and he's really interesting to me because, you know, your lens of lived experience will in part determine the questions you're able to ask and not ask. Mm. So Professor Sukhvinder Obi, many other social neuroscientists, um, Dacca Keltner, have all come to this same view at the moment that we don't know where power resides in the brain and the body, but we do know that often, not always, I keep having to say this, not always, often the more power you get, the more your empathy goes down. So if you think about that in any structure, organisational, if you think about it between you and your siblings, your caregivers, anyone you're giving care to, that's a pretty tricky thought that your empathy, i.e. the ability to understand and share or feel um, what others are going through goes down. So that in the first case now, what, what do we know about that? When I started doing this work, I, I was interested in talking to people with a lived experience and neuroscientists. What I didn't think to do was that I'd have to go back and get some basic understandings of how our brains and bodies work. And so I did that and I got to talk with a lot of people, but the person I'll talk about now is a woman called Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett. And the reason that I'm citing her is that actually her work is super, super accessible. You can go on YouTube and Google her and she speaks in ways that understand. Um, to anyone who can access it, there's an amazing um, interview. If you just Google uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett and GQ and emotions, that will come up. Super simple, but let me explain it here. So a lot of us know that we predict. So predicting means that in really simple terms, you're here talking to me. Um, and what you do is you're predicting not necessarily what you think I'll say, but you're predicting a lot of how we interact because of something called body budgeting. And Lisa Feldman Barrett explains that really simple. Body budgeting's posh term is allostasis. So if you're interested, that's the technical term, but let's make it simple and easy and let's call it body budgeting. And what body budgeting is, is the way in which your body goes, I have a budget, just like you have a shopping budget. So however much you have, you might be like, hmm, I really want this insert X. I don't know. Uh, expensive steak, posh fizzy water. Uh, I want Heinz baked beans instead of someone else's baked beans. But you go, actually, I only have this amount of money, and so I'm going to get that. And mm -hmm. somewhere you're predicting in your brain and you're kind of thinking health, nutrition, pleasure, um, packaging, whatever it is, but you're balancing it out. Your body does the same thing. So it goes, let's imagine, I'll make it up, that your body um, starts off when you're born with a thousand pennies in it. So imagine like one of those bottles that you put your pennies in to save your money. Your body knows that if it goes to under 300 pennies, that's death. So actually what your nervous system and your brain is doing 
it's really one thing. It's like, how do I keep this body alive? And so it spends that money very economically. Hence, a lot of the predicting. Because if you had to sit here and think, is Suzanne on the laptop? Am I looking at a brown door behind her? What's that on her face? You're you're using so much energy, right? Mm. So predict, but we know where that goes. Like that doesn't end well for a lot of people. And so now when you go back to thinking about often, not always, the more power you have, the less empathy you have, you then end up with a group of people who simply don't care as much as we might want them to do. And then the notion of power in our society, in Western society, is that it's a reward system, right? So I don't want to be political about this, but whichever way you vote anywhere in the world, I just want you to think about those people where you've seen this play out. They get into power, they promise one thing, over a period of time, you start to feel like they don't really care about you, then they don't care about your group of people, then you're realizing there's bigger and bigger and bigger groups of people they don't care about, so they're losing empathy. Then their predictive cells is just going haywire. And then uh, their body budgeting is all about themselves. And here's the crucial thing about body budgeting. I don't just budget and take in and out of my body. My budgeting process takes in and out of your body. And then you come back to my original definition of power is the ability to affect other states. And so you can see how that's all like a loop, right? Mm. If you look at it in terms of racism, if you look at it in terms of change, then people who have power, one of the functions that is that the more rewards they get, the more they keep going. So if you're a politician and there's no way for us to hold you accountable, then you keep getting more rewards for what we perceive to be your bad behavior. You keep doing it. Potentially, you get more power, less empathy. Potentially, you predict based on, we predict based on the things that have happened in the past. So now you can predict that you're gonna be okay because that's your past. Then you are, your body budgeting skills are uh, you think enabling your body more, but actually they're disabling other people's bodies more. So that's the science around what I've learned. I really hope I explained it simply. No, definitely. Um, I mean, simply, but also I guess it's it's a worrying realisation in as much as when power dynamics in a society are already skewed so significantly um, in favour of some groups and in disfavour of other groups, how has that over particularly long periods shaped people's brains in a way that makes it difficult to uh, then drastically alter those power dynamics I mean can we be hopeful I mean I I know I know the brain is you know neuroplasticity and all of this thing stuff that 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 your brain can continue to learn and change but but I suppose it depends how long you've been practicing something and some of these power dynamics have been in place for uh, a, a very long time I mean I guess does this research make you hopeful or does it make you um, a little concerned for uh, so the prognosis for change if you're watching this you can see me kind of smiling with a 
odd smile. And that's because like I work with a team of seven right now and we have these conversations all the time. And I like, uh, I don't, I wouldn't call myself a, a hapless optimist, right? And so then the team says to me, so Suzanne, why are you doing the work? Like, if you don't have hope, why are you doing the work? And my answer is quite dramatic. As I said, I've come from quite a traumatic background. I've had periods where I just couldn't function. I literally couldn't function. And I'm quite all or nothing. And so I go, well, I'm either going to go to bed and give up or I'm just going to have some hope. And so there's a couple of things I want to do. You talked about neuroplasticity, and I wanna just talk about that because that is a mode of hope. But I also wanna talk about um, what I have called um, from learning from someone called, um, I think her name is pronounced Mariam Kaber. Do mm -hmm. you know her? I, and, I, I... Okay, and she, she's got this idea of hope for the future. And she talks about hope as a discipline. Okay. And I really like that. So for me, hope is the discipline of keeping going and keeping trying, as opposed to a kind of slightly whatless, it'll just be all right. We don't have to do anything. So that for me is hope. But I want to go back to neuroplasticity because some people might not know what that is. Mm -hmm. And simply, again, or I hope it's simple. And if it's not, if anything I've said isn't simple, then then shout me out on social media because the only way I'll know whether this is working is if people tell me it's working. So neuroplasticity, when I was young, we always thought and were told in school that you got to sort of 18 and your brain was fixed. So you didn't really learn after that. Well, we now know as you do. And that idea is neuroplasticity. And it is this way of if you keep learning and thinking, then the neurons in your brain reform and reshape and they make new connections, which, of course, goes back to predictive, because if you then push yourself to start learning and evolving and thinking and behaving differently, guess what? You're making a new set of memories, so your predictive behaviours will be different. And the thing about neuroplasticity, I did some talks with an amazing neurologist called Dr. Jerome Lube. And again, all the people I'm citing, there are many others that are doing the work. These are the ones that I know, and that I know you can Google and not spend money on, and you'll hear them talking about things in what I call everyday language. And so the thing that Jerome said is that um, your brain often can't tell the difference between a bear chasing you and a deadline. Mm -hmm. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because we know, you know, your heart rate goes up, adrenaline function. And neuroplasticity, trying to deal with change, trying to deal with racism is the same thing. But for those in power, if you think about the fact that maybe for them, this is a bear moment, the idea of relinquishing power, sharing power, the idea that another group that doesn't look like you, that society has 
uh, also placed in a certain way the idea that that you need to change your way of thinking is as terrifying to them as if a bear was coming after. And so for those people, you know, this this pod this podcast has whiteness centered at it. And I think the crucial bit here is you sitting in that discomfort of how you're feeling when you're being challenged or when you're being asked to work in a different way, whether this is about workforce or leaders or families, whatever part of society, that discomfort you're feeling is a really healthy thing. And then what Jerome Lube says is breathe. Because what happens is when you just take deep breaths in and out, your body, your brain goes, oh, well, if I've got time to breathe, then it's not a bear chasing me. Mm. So when someone challenges you over uh, your perception of their lived experience, when someone calls you out, you are building up your own resilience. You are contributing to your own growth by sitting with that discomfort and, and thinking about, is this just because I've always really, to a degree, had it largely my own way. Um, so that's why neuroplasticity felt important to talk about. So that's so interesting because I guess um, we don't often talk about, um, we often talk about uh, organisational or societal change and a lot of people will stand behind their desire to see, you know, if it's societal racial equality or in an organisation, you know, uh, more um, effective power sharing or more diverse leadership. And it's quite easy, I think, to get people to sort of verbally sign up to that. But what I'm hearing from you is that, Actually, if we want to talk about how that's going to feel sensorially for people who have to concede power, that involves recognizing a level of personal discomfort, um, unease, even fear, I guess, you with your description of the bear, you know, um, actual physiological sensations that are disagreeable and learning to accept that those are the necessary path to go down as part of relinquishing that power yes you, you can't do it without like people and this is this thing right people talk about organizations may organizations are made of people the culture of an organization is that because of the people and so what happens is it gets bounced around oh it's not me it's not me it's not me it's the organization and no it's the people that are creating the culture and um, for those that, you know, I should backtrack and say that power by itself is, is neither one thing or the other. And all of us have power and agency depending on where we are at any moment. So there are a lot of times that I don't have power agency, but of course I have power and agency in some circumstances. But what I'm talking about here is a broader in an organization who has that power and agency to define the culture that other people are then going to follow for those people the challenge becomes that the more power you get the less empathy you probably have you don't care so much but also you're able to make more and more autonomous decisions and so why on earth if you can do that 
would you want to sit in discomfort? Like, why would you want to do that? And my answer is, again, Suzanne, you know, bit one or the other. You're either a world maker or you are a world breaker. And I'm, as you said, an Acumen 2022 fellow. So I'm on the fellowship now. And it's all about, it's all about how social leaders who have social justice at their heart can do more. And actually, I think it's about how we look at ourselves on this fellowship to understand who we are in relationship to the world. But the reason I say that is right now where we're kind of writing our, you know, if you want to put it quickly, like the elevator pitch, who are you, what are you doing and why? And I've struggled with that because ultimately that sentence is it for me. I'm either working with you as a world maker or a world breaker. And um, if I wanted to give an example of that, there's a subheading to that, right? Because everyone's like, oh, yes, I'm a world maker. You know, I'm a food, I work for a food company or I work for a, a, a social platform and we're all about making the world better. But the sub thing to that is in the work you're doing, who is paying the price? And if people are paying a price for what you're doing, and even and alongside that, if it's the regular group of marginalized people that are paying a price, if the planet is paying a price, guess what? You're not a world maker, you're a world breaker. And of course, to a degree, our simple human existence on this planet makes it very difficult for us to be world makers. But I think what I'm saying is that now it's like this, right? This schism, and we need to work to get a better balance. So yeah, that that's that's yeah, that's my view. Um yeah, I mean I suppose for anyone, particularly those of us who live in um kind of the global north, the impact of our daily lives is feels so significant you know it's like you, you go to the shop and you, you buy lunch and you know the, the wrapping of your lunch or you know how the animals or the food that you buy has been sourced and the impact of the people that were producing it I mean it feels very dis difficult to disentangle um, meaningfully I think uh, at an individual level from the harm that the systems that we are a part of continue to um, wreak on, on on the rest of the world. But um, I wanted to ask, I guess, at an individual level, what are some of the most effective strategies that you found to get people to concede power, to share power, I guess? And, and I'm asking it, obviously, because I know that you do this presumably within an organisational framework, but maybe there are strategies that we can learn from that that could be um, useful, um, powerful, if for want for a better word, um, in in the wider context of, of, of race relations and how we um, actually make meaningful change when it comes to issues of racial inequality. So I think, I think the key is that there aren't any super simple, super quick fixes, but and what I want to do is share a bit of my own story around the strategy of doing that. I think that 
ultimately, the, the most simple answer, oddly, is to spend time looking at oneself in the mirror and reflecting on what sort of human being you want to be. And then you get into that neuroplasticity, that kind of um, discomfort. You feel like a bear's chasing you. So you disconnect from that feeling really quickly and you go, oh, it's not me, it's meritocracy. Or, oh, well, that extra pair of boots that I don't really need to buy, it doesn't matter. But I do think every little action makes a difference. And the more that you are able to look in the mirror and question yourself, the greater your impact will be. So it took me 22 years, I think we're on now, to get the mental health diagnoses that I, that I have needed. And as I said, I think having all of those diagnoses and understanding myself is what's given me the space to do neurology of power. So some of those actions are not going to be overnight, but actually it starts with looking at yourself and really, really contemplating what sort of human being you want to be. And then from there, there are things that you can do overnight and things that you can't do. Who do you want to work for as an organization and why? That might take a number of steps. What sort of caregiver do you want to be? Where can you afford to buy your foods from differently? But also acknowledge what you can't do at the moment. Like you said, it's a lot. Does that make sense? So I'm not asking you to do all at once. No, no, of course. Um, I think that's, um, those are, I mean, it's often the simple stuff that actually is the hardest, to be honest. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. What, what about, um, I wanted to ask you, I don't know, when I speak to a lot of people who work within organisations, they say, oh, all, all everyone wants to talk about now um, in organisations when you talk about power dynamics is white privilege. And what is the relationship you see between the conversations around power and the work, in fact, that you've done on power and what gets called white privilege? Can you, because I think there's obviously... Uh, a lot of resistance when you bring up the term in certain organizational contexts context or even societal contexts um, but maybe if we discussed white privilege in the context of power it might help us understand the term better and how to challenge it better I don't know just a thought well I think that um you know I was born in the UK. I went, I bounced between comprehensives and posh schools, but universally I was only, I was only ever one of two or three black kids. And the notion of white privilege for me was such a norm. I didn't even, I didn't even, I couldn't even conceive that I could exist in a space where there wasn't white privilege. Now, the challenge with that right now is that it's always been difficult, again, neuroplasticity, oops, sorry, an alarm, uh, always neuroplasticity that um, come back to neuroplasticity and the bear. So if I'm asking you to think of something that fundamentally makes you feel uncomfortable and if you don't have to do it, right, because privilege means that 
you don't see an immediate impact on that. Or better still, you see the rest of society is going to support you in not thinking about that. Then white privilege continues. And so white privilege is absolutely both a function of power and it is um, supported by the power structures. And so let me try and explain that to you. If we had a society where, um, where I don't know, um, oh gosh. That, your, is that your fire alarm? That is the hotel fire alarm. Well, but we're going to assume that that was there for a bit of excitement on the podcast. <laughs> And that actually it might be a test. We're going to hope it's a test for your <laughs> sake mostly. <laughs> yeah, well, if, if you see me suddenly picking up and running, then it wasn't a test. Then we but will fully understand why, yes. Yes, you'll understand why. But in terms of, of, of white privilege and power, I want to bring something else into it. Quite often, um, when I talk about a function of privilege. So I sort of talk about specifically when someone will have it harder than someone else. Actually, quite often white folk will say to me now, but I'm having it hard as well. And I can't really get through to them that that extra layer around the color of your skin amplifies it. But I tend to think about things and I was like, okay, so I'm here in England and actually, when I go to Scotland, it's there's not that intense, but what about me? It's more like, yeah, we took part and we weren't great. What can we do about it? So I was like, what is this about being in England then? Mm. There are some terms, a feudal democracy and a democratic feudalism. But I am recoining those terms. And what I want people to think about is that England has is a democracy that's really a feudalistic state and what do i mean by that i mean we are here in england yes we have choice but really we are signing up to a democratic feudalism because we this country has originated from a few people having mass power over others not in their best interest. And so actually when when people in this country go, oh, but it's happening to me, what they mean is they're in a democracy that isn't really a democracy and they're suffering too. And I agree with that. Mm. But then you haven't added the layer of racism. And so I think one of the things that I'm good at is trying to step into other people's shoes. And that is not an excuse for racism. People need to hear me, it really isn't. But I think the society of England and many other Western constructs are based on that. They've always been a privileged few. And in part, what they've done is dehumanized the black and brown community as a way of telling their own white community, we've got your back. But the truth of it is power doesn't work like that. Do you see what I mean? And so that thing of after they've come for you and they've come for you, they're coming for you and they're coming for me Mm. is true here. And that is why I do my work because 
I need regular people like you and me to understand what happens with power in our brains and bodies so that then we can take a breath and we can think about how we can harness our own power. And I need those who have power to understand that this is a false equation. The world is falling apart. We can see it. Climate change is happening. We are in more and more discord. This is only going one way and it's not a great way. Well, on that note, uh, Suzanne, I'm going to suggest that we uh, move to the uh, quick fire round. Is that all right with you? Um, conscious of your time, especially. Um, so quick fire round is the idea of quick fire questions with quick fire responses, if you can. Um, my first question to you is, what is the root of racism? Power is the root of racism, my friend, because it is about dehumanising one group of people for the benefit of a few. What does racial justice look like? Racial justice looks like everybody thriving and flourishing together. If there was one thing you could change in the world, what would it be? Who gets to be in power? Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes, it is. But you have to remember, it's not a bear. What's the dream? My dream is a world where everyone flourishes and thrives together. Amazing. Suzanne, Elaine, thank you so much for sharing your responses and for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, if people want to find out more about your work, is there somewhere you'd like to refer them to? Yeah, there's two places. So... Um, the first place is follow me on socials, LinkedIn, uh, Suzanne Aline. So Aline is A-L-L-E-Y-N-E. -E, so that's pretty good if you want kind of organisational development stuff. Twitter for that as well, at Aline and, so A-L-L-E-Y-N-E-A-N-D. And Instagram is the same. And then we've just created a rather fab website, if I don't say so myself, called allaboutpower.org and it's completely free and it holds a lot of my talks it will hold a lovely blog post about this and signpost you here it holds resources and it is free and will always be free that's amazing thank you so much um well that leaves me just to thank you one final time for taking the time to talk with us today thank you of course to all of our listeners for tuning into this episode of we need to talk about whiteness please do subscribe on itunes spotify or soundcloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness thank you so much <laughs>